You are in the ring with Hector Galon, seven-time national boxing champion turned nonprofit president and CEO. Hector knocks out the big issues facing social services today with high-impact leaders from around the U.S. In the Ring is a creation of Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan and is produced by No Studios. And now, here's Hector Colon. Hello, 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 and welcome to In the Ring with Hector Colon. We are so excited to have you again this year. Last year, my guest got real about the challenges facing the social services sector and the people we serve. I am so grateful for all the wisdom and insights we received from them on how they are serving their colleagues better, their clients, and ensuring the financial viability of our sector. You can check out all of these episodes at lsswis in the ring. I hope these conversations sparked awareness and that they will serve as inspiration for you to act. This year, we're going to get into the punching power of our sector, highlighting the many ways that leaders and organizations are knocking out the challenges and moving their organizations forward. Subscribe on YouTube now and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn so you don't miss any of these important conversations in the future. I want to thank M3 Insurance for your continued support of In the Ring with Hector Colon podcast. Okay, as my coach shirt used to say, let's go, champ. In the ring with me today is Jody Levinson Johnson, president and CEO of Social Current. Jody, uh, Social Current is the result of a merger in 2021 between the Alliance of Strong Families and Communities and the Council on Accreditation. They serve 12,000 human service or, uh, services professionals in their network and they represent nearly 2,000 organizations that range from 1 million to 100 million that serves over 70,000 individuals. They are in all U.S. states, Puerto Rico, six Canadian provinces, military bases worldwide. Jody has 30 years of experience as a licensed clinical social worker and has been a longstanding champion uh, for systems change. Her experience includes Assistant Vice President of Practice Improvement at the National Council for Behavioral Health, Deputy Assistant Secretary of, of the Louisiana Office of Behavioral Health, and Vice President of Coordinated Care Services, Inc. She has led system reforms across the country, fueling her passion for impacting deep change in social and public systems. Okay, Jody, are you ready for round one? I am ready, Hector. Great, Jody. So why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about that major merger that you had in 2021? Sure. So um, first, thanks for having me, and, and thanks for asking about the merger. It was probably one of the biggest uh, system changes I've undertaken in my career uh, bringing together the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and um, the Council on Accreditation to form Social Current. And really, um, this is like, I think, a great example of like big disrupt disruptive change and how big disruptive change can actually have significant impact on the sector. And so it's something I think we all need to be 
thinking about. So, you know, we brought together these two organizations, both who had been around for quite some time, each with their own cultures. But the idea was by bringing them together, we could impact the sector and support organizations like yours in so many different ways, whether that's through, you know, technical assistance, best practice, or um, accreditation, policy and advocacy work. So, you know, with any big change, you have fits and starts, and we've had our bumps in the road. But I would say, Overall, we're doing pretty good. We started 2023 strong um, and really with this unified identity as social current. And we hope to really continue to impact the sector and support organizations in ways that are deeply meaningful and uh, ideally lead to this um, very prosperous and thriving society for everybody. So that's the big kind of the big lofty goal. Thank you, Jody. You know, I just want to probe a little bit on there for those of us that are looking uh, to get into mergers and acquisition and grow our organization, what would you say is one uh, important lesson learned that uh, that the rest of us can say, okay, uh, maybe we want to not make that mistake and do something slightly different, but what what advice would you have for us? You know, I think it's um, it's been interesting for us that when we were going through the process and had made the decision to move forward, I, my board chair at the time said to me, you know, the biggest kind of aspect of this that's going to be, the, I think the most challenging is going to be, you know, establishing a new culture. And, you know, that, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a guru of leadership, right? I consider myself this lifelong learner and student of leadership. And I was like, I got this. And I think you know what you can never underestimate um, the importance of culture and how each organization that comes into any sort of merger or affiliation or partnership they bring their cultures and not everything is bad and not everything is great and so it's really sort of having a healthy respect for the past while also um, forging forward and holding that tension. I think that's been something that's been hard to do. We also operate virtually, so it's it's even harder to establish culture um, in a virtual environment. But I think never underestimate the importance of establishing a new culture. Um, and don't just expect if you're merging or partnering that someone's just going to adapt into your culture. It's really got to be um, you know, people coming in and preserving their identities as well as then creating something new together, if that makes sense. Yeah, thank you so much for for sharing that. Uh, as you know, uh, our sector uh, should have more of these mergers and, and and these partnerships. So when you share your wisdom and insights, you inspire us uh, to want to uh, follow suit. So thank you. You know, my guest last year uh, agreed that right now is a turning point in our sector, that we are poised for growth, which will elevate social services to the level of healthcare. Do you and Social Current agree with this statement? And what specifically makes this the time for our sector? I think it's a great statement and I, I absolutely agree. And I feel like like I, I feel like this really is the time and I feel like we've learned that so much over the past few years. And when I think about what we've learned, um, it's this idea about the interwovenness between physical health and emotional health um, and primary care and human services. And so like our our country grab, grappled with this huge healthcare challenge. It's the biggest one I can ever remember facing when, when COVID came and we realized the tremendous implications that physical health conditions um, have on emotional well-being. And so I think there was this realization by the healthcare sector, 
about the like the really deep need for social sector organizations and all that we can accomplish together because we supported so much during the pandemics and um, you know, we can address the things that lead to the health inequities and the disparities we see in health outcomes, um, the perpetuation of those inequities and the systemic racism. So, you know, primary care has always been like, this is essential health. And I think what we really need to continue to point to is that essential to health are people who live in thriving and safe, prosperous communities and who have access to resources. And I think that is our sweet spot in the sector. I think community-based organizations are really poised to do that. So I think right now, no one can really question the importance of us. Um, and so I think it's an important for us to then capitalize on that while we've got sort of the bright light shining on all that we can accomplish in partnership with, with the health sector. Thank you. Uh, what three critical steps do you feel that leaders and their organizations need to take now uh, to realize this transformation and how we get ingrained in 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 with healthcare and primary care uh, to yield to better outcomes for the people we serve. You know, it's it's interesting. It's hard to come up with just three because you know you say that I'm like, oh, I got about twenty. But but what I think um, I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I actually did some research about how um, how people and leaders address environments that are constraining. And, and one of the primary things that came out of that research and also just in my experience is like one of the biggest important things that people can do is think about partnerships and about relationship development. So I sort of touched on that when, when you asked about the merger, but I think it's this idea that um, we can do more and we can be more effective when we work in partnership with others. And I also think it's really important for us to be thinking about how we partner um, with those who have lived expertise um, and how we really co-create and we sort of level the playing field and we shift power so that it isn't just this, the, you know, the professionals, and I put that term in quotes, but the professionals that have power, but it's also um, about how we share power with people in community. I think when I think about a second thing, I think about uh, investing in staff capability and, and capacity. You know, we have this tremendous workforce crisis in the human services field right now. And so ensuring that our people have the right skills and that they are also supported in doing what I think is very emotionally taxing work is really important. And then when I think about the last thing, I think about um, advocacy and alignment, which is really like one of the things that Social Current does focus on. But it's this idea of really you know, our sector's huge. When you when you did the intro of um, Social Current, we have over 1,800 organizations who work with us. So working to unify the voice so that collectively we could really be heard and have the impact, I think those are some of the biggest opportunities we have right now. Great. Is What is Social Current currently doing right now uh, to help organizations realize and focus on these priorities? You know, I think I think we try to be a model, especially of the partnerships and the relationships aspect. We partner with everybody so in, in so much of what we do. So like when we engage in our policy and advocacy work, we're doing that as part of many coalitions because we realize that like us standing alone is one thing, but us standing in partnership with other large organizations in the sector are really important. So um, we work with the National Council of Nonprofits. We work with independent sector. 
We work with Leadership 18 that I know Lutheran Services of America is a part of as well, really trying to unite and unify to move the needle on the things that are, are um, really important to us. And then, you know, I think about, we learn from all of you. And so in all that we're doing, um, I, I don't think Social Current wants to be in the seat of we know all. And what we know is that we are research-based, that we are field-informed. And so it's all of the experiences that you and other organizations like you have that help us to then bring a voice maybe to DC. And so I think about that partnership and that relationship and how we help facilitate organizations to learn from each other, which kind of speaks to this idea about staff capability and, and capacity, because really helping organizations to address the wellness of their staff. We actually just recently started doing work in workforce resilience. We're offering a webinar series on that. Um, and we're doing actually a couple learning collaboratives for one national organization for all of their affiliates who said, can you help us really focus on, on workforce resilience and supporting our staff? And so we're launching these cohort-based opportunities where organizations can learn with us. They can learn from each other. And again, that kind of ties to that partnerships thing. We don't have all the answers, but a lot of you have different answers specific to your communities that you can cross fertilize. So we're trying to facilitate that to help you support your own workforce. I think the other thing we've been doing is we're doing a lot of work um, with organizations supporting their work on their equity, diversity, and inclusion activities in their journey. And so we're helping organizations to increase their knowledge base in those areas and to really think about um, how they can embed equity, diversity, inclusion in their cultures. And then um, I also think about our accreditation work where we have standards and our standards, unlike other accrediting bodies, are free and available to the public. They're up on our website. You can access them. And whether you're accredited um, or not, whether you're COA accredited by Social Current or not, you, um, you can access that tremendous resource, which actually um, provides a great framework for best practice and it captures sort of the essence of quality. And so you can hold yourself as an organization accountable to being the best you can be. And so I think that's an opportunity for us as a sector where we can think more kind of about sort of a consumer reports orientation to our work where, where we actually really understand what quality looks like and we make people smart consumers. It, you know, it's, it's always been so striking to me that if I want to buy a car or a washer or a dryer, I can read everything about that, get ratings from a zillion people, know which is the best, but yet there's not something comparable in human services. And I think accreditation is probably the closest thing we have to that. And so we should le leverage that a bit more intentionally. And then on the advocacy front, we're, I know we're going to talk more about that, but we're doing a whole bunch in that area um, to really think about how we can work with organizations across the sector to get our voice together, whether that's to reauthorize funding streams or to increase appropriations. Um, we have a government relations team that's ready, willing, and able to help all organizations to, to strengthen their impact, whether it's at the state, local, um, or federal level. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Jody. And there's a lot of punching power in your modeling uh, those priorities. So I, I think that was very powerful how you shared that and how I have seen that. And the other uh, powerful uh, aspect of of your network are the members. And I know that I have learned so much uh, from so many of them. Us just getting together and sharing best practices and what we've done, it's really uh, engaging and exciting to be a part of that powerful 
uh, network. So thank you. That completes round one. Yay. In round two, we're going to discuss how social service organizations are innovating, merging, and providing our sector's value through outcomes. But first, a word from our sponsor. Supporting your employees is more than a paycheck and 401k. It's just a fact. People today are at a higher risk of experiencing mental illness, housing insecurity, and substance abuse. Do you know the health of your employees, your communities? How can you step up your benefits to better address their well-being? M3 Insurance helps businesses see beyond basic benefits and support employees where they live. It's a meet-them-where-they-are approach that LSS delivers to their clients every day. M3 and LSS offer real solutions to now commonplace realities that strengthen employees and inspire communities to thrive. Test your employee benefit strategy now by going to m3ins.com. Okay, Jody, are you ready for round two? Ready. All right. Great. Uh, so on your website, it says together with thousands of social services sector leaders, we will activate the power of the social services sector to create a unified, intrepid, just, and purposeful network. So clearly partnerships are part of that. How are partnerships different in our sector today compared to how they were 10 years ago? You know, it, it's interesting because I, I start to think about, gosh, I don't even know what was going on 10 years ago. It's amazing how time flies. But but what I think about really is um, what I think about really is partnerships 10 years ago, I think were less essential. I think um, people had, you know, gentlemen's agreements, uh, it's sort of not the best term. They had gentle persons agreements, you know, handshake kind of deals. Um, and I think now um, partnerships are taking a bit of a more uh, formal or structured approach. Um, it's it's sort of the, the idea that you can recognize um, what each of the respective partner strengths are, and each of them brings strengths together in service of that. And so you might be more formal in asserting, well, you're good at this and I'm good at this, so we're going to work together to achieve a certain outcome. I feel like that's um, become a bit more common in terms of the, um, in the past 10 years, the formalization of that. Okay. Uh, in what ways has COVID or equity, diversity, and inclusion affected growth in partnership? You know, I think, I think there's so many possible ways to think about that, but I think really COVID demonstrated to all of us, again, that, that we're stronger together that if we work alongside one another and we have a, a common vision, we can accomplish a, a lot more. I feel like COVID broke down some of those more historical barriers that that tended to hinder us as a sector. Um, and they allowed us to sort of realize how we could all come together and, and work because we each have this unique and important role to play. So I think about you know, really trying to get vaccine information out to, to organizations or to people, to communities, hospitals necessarily had healthcare settings weren't necessarily achieving that as well as community-based organizations. And so we started to think about how do we capitalize on each other's strengths. I also think the focus on, on EDI really has reminded us that um, 
we don't, and like, there's just no way we could have all the answers ourselves. And so we need to be willing to, to listen to the voices of others, bring others to the table, um, and capitalize on the, the fact that people are credible messengers with different audiences. And so I feel like that's really sort of some of the things that I'm seeing right now that feel different um, because of our focus and our lens on EDI and because of our, our lessons learned from COVID. That's great. Yeah, there there could be opportunities. There there's smaller organization that specializes in equity, diversity, and inclusion, and you could partner with that organization. And instead of maybe trying to create uh, your whole new equity, diversity, and inclusion initiative or or team, uh, so that's a that's a good good example. What would you say is the preferred uh, form of partnership to date? Uh, is it collaboration? Is it legal partnership? Is it a merger, an acquisition? Uh, there's lots of options out there. What 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 is the ideal approach? You know, I think it, it really depends on, on each organization and what they need or what, what organizations are looking for. I go back to the strengths. I mean, I'm a social worker and I was schooled on this strengths-based perspective, but you think about um, strengths and needs. And so what are the strengths that each organization has? And then what are the needs of the community or where are the, the gaps for those organizations? I've seen all kinds of, of arrangements work. And I think um, what's important is thinking through how we ensure that there's this very diverse and rich network that's inclusive of you know, bigger, more well-established organizations, as well as smaller grassroots organizations, maybe those that are ethnic or community specific. Um, I, don't, I don't feel like we can afford to lose either. And so I think it's it really depends on the circumstance and what the community's needs are. That's a good point. Uh, do you see the health systems uh, developing the capacity to address the social determinants of health, something that our sector uh, are experts in and have been in for a very long time. And do you see this as duplicative of the work of our sector and what we can provide and are providing in this space? You know, I think if I want to look at this as, again, going back to sort of my strengths orientation, I think this could present one of our biggest opportunities as a sector and a big opportunity for partnership because I think it could be duplicative if we let it. Um, what we know is our organizations, those in our network, organizations like yours, they've been doing social determinants work forever, even before we had the name social determinants, when it was called just basic needs or you know whatever the, the phrase of the day was. Um, we've been doing that as a matter of course for as long as we've been around. And so I think we can be viable and I would say a necessary partner to health systems. And so I think like addressing social determinants, that's our DNA. And so I think health systems are going to be better and stronger for it if they didn't like reinvent the wheel. And if they instead worked on figuring out with us how to finance and support our ability to meet their um, their people's social determinant needs. I, you know, they could spin up their whole separate business if they want. But what I would argue is don't do that. Instead, use the credible local human service organizations who know communities, know resources, and can partner with you, do it effectively and efficiently without, I think, a heavy lift, because that's what we do. And I think that the biggest thing in here is we need to be paid for that work. That shouldn't be work we just do for free. So, um, and I think sometimes that's where the sticking point is, is how does that work get paid for? We're seeing more, 
more creative strategies for financing that social determinants work, which is encouraging to me. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And at Social Services, uh, LSS, uh, we really want to partner with those healthcare systems and and, and insurance companies to reduce costs uh, for those individuals that that are heavy utilizers of costly services, but more importantly, improve their outcomes for individuals that today are are falling through the cracks. So um, I'm excited. We have two uh, partnerships uh, in the works, and we'll be sharing more about that uh, in future episodes. But it is exciting uh, that to have these partnerships to utilize our strengths um, and as well as uh, the health systems and the insurance strengths so we can come together and make a difference in people that are falling through the cracks today. Yeah. So a follow-up uh, question is, what are some of the greatest investment needs of our sector and how are organizations prioritizing them? You know, I think this sort of uh, ties back to this idea when you asked me at the be- in round one about the priorities and it's about like workforce capability and capacity. When I think about one of the greatest needs right now, it's leadership and it's workforce um, development. And, um, and then I also think, of course, secondarily about ensuring positioning so that we speak and have impact. But when I think about leadership and workforce development, I think about even my own experience. Like you rose through the rank in a in a community-based organization just because you were a good clinician and then a, you know, you were a good supervisor, or whatever. And I was fortunate in that I got leadership development and an investment because our community had a grant to do supervisory and leadership development. But most most folks don't get that. And so I really think we need to um, invest in our staff. We need to be sure that we understand what it takes to do that job well. And then I also think we need to hire for that or, or train for that. We can't just expect people to kind of grow skills out of nowhere. Um, and I, I think about this all the time. I also think about what does it take to do good work? And so when I think back on, on direct care work where I started. I think most folks who come into the sector, you get that entry-level job. I actually had my first job working in residential care with um, with children and youth. And, and so what did I need to do that job? When I look back, I needed to be empathic. I needed to be clear. I needed to be able to like set limits and boundaries and then stick to them. Um, and then I also had to have this sort of willingness to learn by doing, because I certainly didn't know what I was doing um, when I started. And so does that require a college degree, which is often some of the credentials that we put on stuff like that? And quite honestly, I don't think my bachelor's in psychology prepared me for that job. But but I think people who have parented, for example, like they know how to do that. They know how to do it better than I do because I haven't parented. So, so like what are our qualifications for jobs? And then how do we develop people once they're in some of those entry-level roles? So you know, I think that's one of the areas as I really think focusing on growing people and helping them to develop the skills um, that they need and and really offering opportunities for trajectories that include support. It's not just we'll throw you into a job and hope you sink or swim. Um, and then I think the other area that um, I think folks should be prioritizing is really how do we mobilize and have impact? And so, you know, we, we need the help. When I think about social hurt, we need the help of this huge network to, to mobilize across and within each organization. So we have this huge workforce. It's not just you and me, Hector. It's all the team that sur- surrounds us. And so how do, we, how do we get all those people mobilized at all levels, CEOs, direct care staff, administrative staff, the finance folks who maybe 
you know, they're in this work for a reason. They work for mission-oriented organizations. Um, and how will we help them to know about key policy um, opportunities and that they can take action? Because I think if we really mobilize the collective staff of our entire network or those who are supporting a particular issue, we could really have impact and it could change the way that things work today. That's sort of my big feeling about that. I agree. And uh, that's very important. It just uh, we're stronger together. Our yeah. voice is amplified uh, when we're speaking uh, with one voice. So clearly, that's a big opportunity for us and something that I know you're trying to do uh, through Social Current. That completes round two. In round three, we're, gonna, we're going to discuss the ways that Social Current is advocating for our sector and the people we serve. We're going to talk about policies and legislation. Okay, Jordy, you ready for our final round? I am. <laughs> Let's go. Come on, champ. Uh, in what ways are your advocacy efforts helping our sector realize its potential? I think right now we're really thinking about and we're working on a lot of different things. Um, so one that's really been top of mind for me right now and um, is considering how we can be more proactive as a sector in working towards more fair and equitable contracting. So uh, what we know is there's this workforce crisis and we know we need to pay a living wage and we have so many people, and I've heard from so many organizations in our network, we have all these good-hearted, mission-oriented people who are leaving our sector and they're going to work at places like McDonald's or Target. And let me be clear, I'm not slamming McDonald's or Target. I think they're fine places to work. But to me, what's really heartbreaking is this idea that the people who want to make a difference, who people who really do care about the work that we're doing, they can't continue to do it because they can't continue the sector. They, they have to leave the sector because they can't afford not to. And that to me is really frustrating. And so um, I think, you know, thinking about how we mobilize as a sector around these issues. And I think we're in a tough spot. Like I, I think in other industries, we see where people go on strike or they, you know, stage walkouts. Um, and if there's like not enough revenue to cover expense. And so I think, you know, here in ours, like we can't just do a strike. If we decided to walk out on work, then people's lives would be at stake. And so how do we really um, make the point that um, that the in continued inequities, that the challenges we have with contracts and payments really impact the quality of the work? And so um, I think what's hard is if you, if you turn away from a contract or an agreement that doesn't cover your full costs, which I think we should probably do more of, but when you do that, someone, in my experience, who perhaps is of lesser quality is generally there and willing to do it for that less amount. And so quality suffers and then people's lives suffer. And I really feel like people deserve better than mediocre or just adequate care. So we're actually looking at some novel ways of using federal incentives to increase reimbursement rates um, in state and local government contracts, because that's where most of the funding tends to flow for community-based organizations that would actually cover the full cost of performing services. So it's like the wages as well as um, 
you know, other things like um, that we see in other sectors, like government and private sector positions, where there's professional development funds and your administrative and your operating costs are actually covered. So we're working with um, some other coalitions on that issue. And we, you know, intend to try to engage our network on this issue. Um, we're also looking at things like the universal charitable deduction, making that permanent because that really benefits our sector, um, trying to make sure that there's a robust and equitable distribution of federal dollars to the sector to compensate for the increased demand that we're seeing. There's so much, um, there's so much emphasis right now on the declining mental health of our, of, of our country. And so we really need to invest then in organizations that support the improving mental health for the people who live in our country. So um, we also you know, think about uh, the employee retention uh, tax credit. We're also thinking about affordable childcare because that's a barrier to people coming to work if they can't afford um, to pay for childcare to come work because their wage doesn't even cover it. So um, those are some of the things we're thinking about. And I think, you know, we really are working, going back to this idea about partnerships, we're really thinking about how we can cultivate mutually beneficial relationships between um, our network of organizations and the Biden administration. So we've recently been working with the Department of Education and we were able to convene some focus groups for them to bring the community-based organization lens to, um, to their full service community schools program. And so I think these are some of the opportunities we have and will continue to have to work in partnership with you know, you all and others in our network to, to try to shine a light on these really important issues. Thank you for all, all of those insights. And and one I want to kind of just focus on and and uh, expand upon a little bit is about the fair contracts. So clearly, this is a big problem uh, for our sector. We don't have enough to pay our staff commensurate to the value they provide society. These are workers that are getting individuals or preventing individuals from getting in the criminal justice system, you know, uh, avoiding costly emergency services, uh, getting people off of government services altogether. And so it's a significant contribution to society that our workers make. And unfortunately, it's not always reflected uh, in those contracts. And and also, like like you said, you know, um, we run a residential treatment facility for kids that penetrate the criminal justice system. It's called HAMI. It's where LSS started 140 years ago in Wittenberg, Wisconsin. And when I first started, uh, we were paying individuals $12 an hour. Uh, today, we're paying them 20 bucks an hour. These are uh, tough jobs. And now, like you said, you know, people can go to Walmart and be a greeter and smile at people as they come through the door or work at Quick Trip and make 20 bucks an hour. Now, our people are here because they love the mission. They love the people we serve. They are here for that sense of purpose. But sometimes there's burnout uh, in our industry. But more important than anything, I believe we have to pay them commensurate to the value they provide uh, the people that we serve. So I'm all with you on that one. Uh, consider us a partner. I want to advocate alongside you and with you to make sure that we can uh, get more money in these contracts so we can pay our, our colleagues uh, better. Uh, can you share um, your most important project that you're working on right now? The one that is embracing uncertainty and challenging the status quo. 
So it was hard. I have to say it's hard to pick just one because there's so much that's going on, but there's one that we're working on right now, which sort of ties to this idea about leadership and workforce development. So um, we actually just started working in partnership with the American Public Human Services Association with support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to develop a new set of leadership competencies that will cut across both um, our network and the community-based organizations like those in our network, and then public sector agencies, so state and local governments, and the community and really bringing in those who have lived experience and expertise. And so this idea about, um, it's like a real, creating a real leadership model, training folks up to figure out how they shift and share power, how they disperse um, power, how they can eradicate the, the historic mistrust, I think that has existed between public agencies and, and social sector agencies and communities, and then those that like that tend to seek support from those entities. So I, I really think about this as a way to like level the playing field. And as I refer to it, equip sort of the flip of power um, from those who have traditionally held it, like the, the public agencies or even the leaders at CBOs, to, to those who um, haven't always had a voice. And I feel like this is the way we're going to actually create that more equitable and and vibrant environment and where people's voices are truly heard and where they're actually driving and contributing to the decision-making. So really excited about what evolves. That work just started. um, So I'm really excited to see what comes from it. Great. I look forward to uh, learning more about that and seeing if there's ways in which we can engage in that effort as well. So I have one final question. How are you using your punching power this year to advocate for our sector? So I think uh, it, this was a great um, opportunity for us to plug a couple of things. So um, we haven't done one. Social Current's never done one. It's been a while, but we're, we actually have a Capitol Hill Day plan for October 18th. So it's being held in conjunction with our um, our annual convening spark. So um, we really want to bring folks up to the Hill Um, to do some advocating together and we'll orchestrate that. And our government relations team is hard at work at that. Um, Right now, we're actually in the midst of offering a series of webinars um, called Taking Back Your Narrative, which is focused on equipping people with the skills they need to effectively advocate. So I think the next session is March 22nd. People can check out the Social Current website, which is www.social-current.org for more information. Um, And we also have um, a team and a leader over our government affairs work who's really ready, willing, and able to support organizations to develop their advocacy muscles. So we'll continue us personally to be on DC, in DC and on the Hill um, at tables where we can shine the light on the importance and the criticality of our sector. Um, But we also are gonna create more opportunities for organizations like you, Hector, to be doing that with us and to really challenging us um, and the kind of the the continued systemic inequities that we face um, in society today. Great. Thank you so much. And I I really look forward to being a part of that, being on the Hill with you and doing the doors and making the case uh, for our sector. And and there was one uh, other issue that I'd like to share is, you know, how there's disincentives for individuals to work Uh, those individuals that we serve, you know, maybe they have a disability and they require 
Uh, I'm going to give you an example. Okay. Uh, my brother-in-law, who suffered a very bad car accident when he was 18 years old. Today, he's 50. Uh, he was supposed to be dead. Um, he was in a coma for months. Uh, finally, he woke up, but uh, he had a stroke, so half of his body was paralyzed. He can no longer speak. Uh, but he's fully functional. He's in his house. He's independent. He wants to be out there working, but he can't work because if he did, they'll take away his food, that liquid food that's necessary to give him the nutrition that he needs. But this guy should be a taxpayer. It's for his own health and well-being. It's good for our country and other taxpayers that we allow everybody to work that wants to work. So just know that I'm really hyped up about this and, and want to join you and others across the country and fighting for common sense legislation that doesn't prevent uh, the individuals we serve uh, from working. So that concludes uh, our, our show here today, Jody. Thank you so much. You were a true knockout. Uh, you are a blessing uh, in our sector, and we're so lucky to have you. And I look forward to strengthening our relationship to do more things uh, in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you, Hector. Really happy to be here. That was truly a knockout. Uh, again, thank you, Jody, uh, for being on the show with me here today. You know, she started off by talking about her own merger uh, with um, the Alliance of Children and Strong Families and Communities. And one of the lessons learned, because uh, I asked her what was one of those lessons learned that we should take into consideration as we are developing these partnerships and wanting to venture into mergers and acquisitions. And she really focused on culture, that both organizations might have their own cultures, but there might have to be a new culture that evolves that embraces both organizations. So she highlighted that as something being very important. And I agree, that makes a lot of sense. When we talked about why is this the time for our sector to, to really thrive and, and really elevate at the level of, of healthcare. And she said that COVID um, really played a major role uh, in, in, um, in that, where physical care and emotional well-being was really at the forefront of everybody's mind and 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 the inequities of of systems and and uh, individuals receiving access was really amplified, and which really rolls us as the sector that can handle and address those inequities and improve uh, in access and help with healthier outcomes for uh, for the people we serve. And then I asked her about priorities. She mentioned partnership, uh, investing in staff capacity. If we don't have, you know, the right staff with the right capacity and, and training, uh, we aren't going to be able to operate with excellence. So we need to we need our colleagues. We need them prepared and trained. And she also talked about advocacy and alignment, bringing our sector together to to advocate in unified voice and strong voice. Uh, and I agree with that. You know, we talked about um, how partnerships looked uh, today, uh, how it looks today compared to 10 years ago. And she mentioned that it was less formal uh, 10 years ago. Maybe it was a ham handshake, but now it's more formal. You have attorneys and 
uh, and contracts and and that are that are much more sophisticated today than they were uh, in the past. And you know, when coming together with other organizations, you mentioned how it's important to look at your strengths, your weaknesses, and where you have those gaps. And by coming together, you can address those gaps and be a stronger organization uh, together. And she also mentioned about how, you know, addressing the social determinants of health, which is something that nonprofit, the social services sector has been doing forever, is is a real opportunity to collaborate with healthcare systems and insurance companies to address those individuals that are falling through the cracks today, those individuals that are heavy utilizers of costly services and have poor outcomes you know, how can we collaborate with the healthcare systems to address those needs, to improve those outcomes, and to reduce the cost? She mentioned, like, I asked her, where do we need to invest right now? And she mentioned leadership, uh, workforce development, both of which uh, uh, relate to people. We need people. We need strong people. We need sharp people. Uh, we need individuals that are you know, in this for the mission, want to be here, but we also need to train them and to pay them better. Uh, so workforce is definitely one of the most important uh, things that we should be focusing on as a, as a sector. She also mo- mentioned that we should be mobilizing and more advocacy and, and coming together so that we can uh, strengthen uh, our impact. She talked about advocacy. You know, one of the key things she focused uh, focused on was how we need to advocate for fair, for better contracts, so that we are paying our colleagues a living wage, a good wage, commensurate to the value they are providing uh, society. And uh, when I asked her, one of the some of the things you're uh, you're working on, a big thing, and she mentioned a partnership with APHSA. Uh, and it's their leadership model that's based on leadership competencies and bringing the public sector together with the nonprofit sector. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to learning more about that. And maybe um, uh, LSS of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan uh, can be a part of that uh, as well. Please let us know what you think about this show and what you want to see in future episodes. Please like, follow, and share at LSSWIS on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss any of these important conversations in the future. All right. Thank you, Jody. Thank you so much again. And to our sponsor, M3. Con mucho cariño, with much affection. Bye. Bye.